Before beginning today, I do want to share that this episode contains conversation about suicide and sexual abuse that may be disturbing for some listeners. If it is, please tune out or in at a time that might be better for you. Hi, I'm Susie McAvale. I live and work on Wurundjeri, Wirrawong country in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And working in education, I've noticed that in this COVID era, young people are not coping with life as well as they used to. But what I've come to understand is these symptoms are signs of a bigger picture and that some of us adults, we also need some help with how to deal with life changes, particularly when it comes to understanding ourselves and relating to one another and our kids. The Let's Check In podcast shares stories and strategies of real people who commit to paving positive ways forward through uncertainty. We talk about the things that you didn't learn at school, that you wish someone had prepared you for. So, let's check in. Hi, and welcome to a special two-part episode of the Let's Check In podcast. Now, to be honest with you, this conversation really did catch me by surprise in so many different ways. I guess it went in directions that I had no idea it was going to go. And I I think on reflection that uh, that's probably one of the reasons why I like it so much. I'm also totally comfortable in sharing that there were quite a few tears throughout the interview from my side. And I'd love to take this opportunity to thank Josie for her rawness and her vulnerability. He's hoping that you find it just as captivating. Josephine Jones is not your average environmental advocate. She starts her day each morning by collecting rubbish on the beach. In fact, she's spent more than 10,000 hours of her own time picking up rubbish along the bays of the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. After her first tonne of rubbish was collected, she was affectionately dubbed One Tonne Mermaid by National Geographic. To date, she's collected well over 5.3 tonnes of rubbish from the peninsula shorelines and continues to campaign for cleaner beaches today. Josie's passion for people and the planet is just contagious. She devotes every spare moment to stopping litter entering waterways and inspires her community to change habits. A graphic designer by trade, she's created the Little Hero Beach Handbins, and if you haven't seen them, They're this nifty little device designed to collect and catch litter while you're at the beach. Josie's outstanding local work and international research has received numerous significant recognition awards, which saw her receive an OAM in 2020 for her work in environmental and litter prevention. Josie, I feel so privileged to be sitting here today hearing you share your story. Thank you so much for being here. No, you're so generous. Thank you for having me. Let's start off by hearing about your story. You know, your story is that of a pretty profound one. Does it feel profound to you? The more I take my journey, the more I realise how many instances of adversity that I've had to face in life in comparison to others. When you're in something and you're going through something, you're you're doing your best to overcome what's happening, you know. Um, but I think as I've healed through my life, I've realised 
why people have said to me, oh, my God, you're so amazing, you're so inspiring, you know, and I think I never really saw that because I probably, due to my life, early life experiences, I probably lacked self-esteem and boundaries, which made me quite vulnerable, you know, to other instances in my life. Although at the same time, I can still count my blessings because sometimes after some experiences, I've thought, my goodness, how did I not, you know, how did I, how was I not led into more trouble because I lacked those personal boundaries and that true self-esteem? Not that anyone would have ever known that. And your childhood, it wasn't an yeah, average story, was it? Well, I grew up in a small country town. Um, we owned a service station, but, you know, my dad and my mum. My parents, like, they all, they always fought. I know that they will often say that there's two sides to every story, but 50% of the world's population has a negative attachment style. And I think understanding that, um, and I think maybe that's probably one of the reasons why people find me inspiring is because I don't get down on things. I'm like, it's sick to understand so that you don't you can end that suffering you know and I think a lot of people get into sort of poor relationships or relationships in general and then they can stay stuck in that if they don't have good boundaries and they don't have good self-esteem um and when you grow up in a poor environment I mean my dad was a very stable person but my mum was quite unstable it's not until years later that we found out that my mum was actually taken from her mum when she was around about five years of age and then she was introduced into another family. She was sexually abused. Um, There's just so many poor things that happened. Um, but, yeah, I basically grew up um, in what seemed to be a middle-class family in a small country town and then um, my mum started having an affair Um and as you can imagine, in a small country town, everyone, people love gossip, you know, um, although it, gossip destroys trust. Um, and then eventually my mum took her own life and that was a really hard experience because it teaches you at a young age the, the downfalls of humanity in that people would rather talk about you than address you people would rather engage in gossip and so forth rather than actually engage in what the true story is and I, I'm not sure which was harder whether to lose her to suicide or to cope with the ignorance of others and the gossip and you know people were like oh that my dad actually killed my mum um you know, there's just so many things. And now that I'm older, I probably say to myself, I actually kind of grew up in the shadow of her mistake in that people would look at me and say, oh, I wonder if she's going to end up the same, you know. Oh, I wonder if it's hereditary. I wonder. So all of those judgments, I could have um, gotten down and thought, gosh, you know, maybe I will or what have you, but there was something inside of me that was, I think on reflection, it's my resilience 
that I didn't want to succumb to what the mass was thinking, you know, the ma- that mass consciousness. You know, when if we took this total sum of everyone's thinking today, um, we would probably find that it would be in the negative rather than in the positive and that that impinges on us, you know, people's judgments, people's thoughts, you know, like even down to, say, litter prevention, like, I'll say to people, you know, I want to inspire change. I don't want to be talking about that I'm picking up litter in a decade because people will be like, could you just go away? You're annoying. Like, you're not solving the problem. You're enabling the problem. And that's why I came up with the beach hand bin because I wanted to put the responsibility back in the hands of the beachgoer. And because I could understand the problem, I wasn't looking at the problem going, oh, you know, it's right. It is coming from out there. I looked and said, hang on a minute, it's not coming from out there. It's the behaviour that's happening on the beach that's actually creating this this problem. And I know I'm sort of away from the initial question, but I was reflecting on it the other day and I was thinking it's so interesting that in poor countries we lack infrastructure and they're throwing rubbish down hillsides and that's entering into rivers and then going out into the ocean. Whereas we live in a privileged society where we have the privilege to buy a bathing suit, you know, have time off, go on holidays and go to a beautiful beach. And then when we get there, 35% of those Australians going to the beach will deposit their litter in the sand and litter. So it's got these really two... Do you know what I mean? Like we talk about plastic yeah. to the ocean and th- th- we've got these socioeconomic differences, but at the end of the day, they're both lacking one thing and that's infrastructure. You know, when we look at why do people litter, the main reason why they litter is because they say they didn't have a bin. That's where the hand bin comes from is it's like, well, if I give you a little hand bin, then I give you the responsibility to take care of your rubbish on the day. And when people think of rubbish, they go, oh, you know, a bottle of this or that. But when we look at what happens with litter on beaches, because it is that shifting environment, you've got hair ties, band-aids, lollipop sticks, the little wrapper on your um, apple, all of those things are what people are just randomly pushing into the sand. And over time, that's building up. I'm really interested to hear how the experience of your childhood connected to this sense of the environment and the, and the love of the environment. I think I, because my mum had grown up in an abusive family with sexual abuse and physical, emotional abuse, um, unfortunately, I was subjected to emotional and physical abuse you know, this is I, all reflection. I this all isn't reflection. At the time, isn't. I didn't I, understand. I, I, and then I read a lot yeah. and just read and read and read, read and read and read and thought, oh, my God, like, that's what happened to me, you know. So I would go to school and dread going home because going home for me meant that, um, you know, potentially there was risk of being hurt. And so instead of going to school and concentrating on my schoolwork I would spend my time worried you know and anxious and like I've spent a lot of time um doing a lot of work but it's moments like these when you talk about that you realize that you're still you know you still have room to grow you know um and the the sadness comes because you think 
you learnt quite early what it is to suffer. And I think one of the hardest things for me was I would see families happy, families going away, um, you know, just just little tiny happiness. And I had to live my life without that. You know, there was always fighting, always problems, always lying. Um, you know, my dad was under a lot of stress because of it and it was breaking all our family unit. Um, and I found a lot of happiness in nature, like I, I would garden or I'd plant a plant or I used to pop around the back because we lived in a service that we, we lived behind a service station and then out our back door you could go down a laneway and there used to be this electrical store and, um, you know, I was often left on my own. I wasn't allowed to go and play with other children or stay because of the way that my mum had grown up and been vulnerable. So I was often on my own. So I used to go around the back to this electrical store and get all the boxes and then I'd come home and I'd fabricate houses out of these boxes, you know, and I'd create windows and I'd just, that was how I entertained myself. We had a lot of pets and I think that they were kind of my solace because, you know, that they couldn't hurt me if that makes sense, you know? It does make sense, and they're a constant for you. Yeah, they were my friends, you know. They'd listen to me, you know. And I think sometimes when you have trauma, like you have an experience, there's a part of you that stays that way, you know. Like, and through my life, I've kind of kept that childlike joy and... Even through adversity, like I'll still look upon something with fresh eyes or I'll see it in a different light and then, you know, people will say to me, how do you do that, you know, how do you how do you stay positive, you know, or like I was saying before about litter prevention, I say to people, you know, I really want to encourage people and people say, oh, people never change, they never change and I say, the fact that you believe that is the problem. And when I see, when I go into like bureaucracy or where there's a lot of process and governance, it's good to have all of those things, but you actually have to live those things, not just talk those things, you know, and there's a big gap, I think, between, you know, the good process and governance and actually acting and, and keeping that standard and, being what you say you want to be and I find that a little bit frustrating in my work in that there's those people who will always be down on things you know that I think it's four percent of the population will always be against what you do so you know there's an old saying when you stand up for what you believe in you'll always have adversity and you know if you don't have adversity through following a passion then I think you've got to look at Am I really following what I'm doing? You know, because I was saying to some children at Balkan Grammar yesterday, I spoke at Balkan Grammar and I was saying to them that I encouraged them to follow their passion, but to remember that not everyone's going to agree with them and not everyone's going to help them. And in actual fact, the more accolades they'll get, the more achievement that they'll get, 
the less opportunities they'll have and the more resilience they'll need to keep knocking until they get a yes, you know? Wow, that's powerful, Josie. Maybe. I think so. It absolutely is. Otherwise, where, where's the growth coming from, you know? It's those moments of knockdown that until we have them, we really don't understand the skills to be able to get back up if we don't exercise that, you know? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I think you and I had a talk about how I had raised my son um, and, again, that's another experience, you know, and sometimes I think, how did I have these so many crazy experiences? But at the same time, you know, the resilience, I think, is the key to to all of this and that is is that Sometimes we face difficult situations and it, it's not about that we deserved it, you know. Sometimes we need those situations to squeeze us a little bit to see how resilient we are. And I think that we underestimate ourselves and especially in a modern society now. Um, I was only talking to my coffee maker this morning and we were just having a chat and he's like 30, so he's 20 years younger than me. And he was saying, you know, the world's so confusing. And I said, it's, I think what it is, it's overwhelming. I said, once upon a time, our world used to be as far as we could walk. And now it's in our hand, you know, we can be anywhere at any time and overwhelmed. And I think that that's where that practice of meditation is really important because I was thinking about coming to talk to you today and I was thinking about like what what if I could have one pearl of wisdom, you know, what would it be to share? And that is, is that um, to know yourself, don't rely on other people to tell you who you are, you know, because the more we rely on outside influences to, to validate us, the more likely we are to be misled you know, because as I say, half the world lives with a negative attachment style. A lot of people don't are not accountable for how they behave and people do put their stuff on you. And if you don't know yourself and you're not, you know, I know who I am. So if someone comes along and goes, hey, you're not a nice person. It's like, well, actually, I know myself and I am a nice person. You know, I'm open to feedback happy to have a conversation but you know I think that's that whole sort of boundaries not allowing people to just step on you because they don't feel good about themselves and I think you know in today's world we have a lot of that you know like I was reading about the tall poppy syndrome Australians especially have a tall poppy syndrome and it comes from the fact that we love the battler but then when the battler succeeds and it becomes successful then people want to pull them down because it's part of that. We love the struggle and we love seeing people overcome. But then when people overcome that mentality, you know, it's like the the hero victim perpetrator, the, the um, it's called the Cartman Triangle. You know, we know that if somebody's making someone out to be a hero, then the other two roles is victim and perpetrator. And all great movies are based on that. Um, but if you put boundaries in place, the victim is no longer a victim. They're vulnerable with boundaries, you know, 
the perpetrator is no longer a perpetrator. They're actually present with boundaries. And the hero, the rescuer, is no longer a rescuer but is actually like present and available with boundaries. It's called the Cartman-Quimby Triangle. It's a psychology from the mid-century but it's actually really opened my eyes to when I see people engaging in that drama triangle, I know that I have two choices and that is one, to remove myself or two, to play one of the roles. It's an interesting thing. I think age has helped me with that. I probably wouldn't have been that good at that when I was younger. Look, you raise a really interesting point and I think a really valid one about boundaries. How did you develop that? I got married to someone in Tahiti in French Polynesia and then I came back to Australia. I was still doing my business. I then went back and I lived in Polynesia um, and then I unfortunately I ended up in a domestic violence situation. I didn't realise at the time when I first came back. I had a son, so, um, you know, I'd given birth. I'd gone through just becoming a mum, but also had to protect my child. I got, I managed to get a flight back to Australia with my son when he was nine months old. Oh, yeah, nine months old. Um, And then I started reaching out for a bit of assistance and then I ended up um, at a centre for domestic violence. And I remember sitting there thinking that I didn't belong there, you know, Um, and I was referred to go there by a, a doctor. And I remember sitting in the room and by this stage I'd gotten down to 41 kilos. Like oh, I was so t- so tiny. I was forgetting my name. I was, you know, I'd been looking after my son. Um, anyways, I remember she had this lady handed me this bit of literature and I was looking at the traits of violence and I sort of sat there and just in this moment realised could that? Could I have just gone through violence? Is that because when you lack self-esteem, and it's a hard thing to understand that you lack, but you can know if you lack self-esteem because you're always in a state of fight flight, and when you lack self-esteem, you lack boundaries, and when you've gone through a domestic violence situation, often what happens is the perpetrator will be telling you that everything's your fault and you believe that. And that was where I was at. At 33 years of age, I was, you know, had a small baby, had managed to get out of French Polynesia and come back to Australia and begin to recover. But, I mean, I had so much anxiety and then just having to parent and my father had gone blind through diabetes um, you know, and you feel stretched because you're like, where do I go? You know, like who has a baby and then has to fight for six years to make sure they don't sure. lose their child. And every time I would go to court, even though we have judicial precedents, I would always have this fear because uh, after nine months, they, my my husband at the time lied and said I kidnapped my son and used the Hague Convention to return us to Tahiti. So they ordered just before Christmas, 
they ordered that my son be returned and the judge said, I have to say to you, I'm sorry, you have to take the long road home. And I thought, oh my God, like this is insane, you know, like, and then I, I went back um, and I am getting to the boundary bit. I went back and my son's dad said, look, you know, don't go to court. I don't want any problems. I'll change, I, you know. And you want things to work. You want to believe, you know. And I didn't have the knowledge that I have now. Um, and I tried. And he actually, there was that inner inkling said to me, be careful. He's not being honest with you. He's setting you up. Um, and he ended up, he'd bought me a camera for Christmas, took me to all the places he'd always promised, got me to take all the photos. And then this one day he just went and downloaded all the photos and then he just changed and then I realized that he was setting me up, you know, because this little voice was saying to me, this, protect yourself. Mm, your intuition. I ended up, I went to leave and then he took our son um, and said, you can't have him. And I ended up in a refuge for women. Uh, and then I had to fight. So I would go to all the courts. And at the time I didn't speak French. So poor me looking like a bit of a loser. Oh, Josie. A mum missing her baby. By that time, he was 17 months. I'd never been apart from him. I felt so sick. Um, and people looked at me and it reminded me of, sorry, it reminded me of that, of that judgment, you know, that I experienced when I was that child, you know, losing my mum. These people looking at me, believing all the rumours that were being said, that I wasn't a good mum, that it, there was a problem with me, you know. And again, this whole projection um, coming from people who don't take any accountability for their own actions and put that on you. But again, it taught me. It taught me so much. It taught me you need to know who you are and you need to be strong and you just need to fight for what's right, you know, not revenge, not cruelty, not unkindness, fight for what's right, you know. And at that time, I even said to life, you know, if my son's dad is the right person for him to be with, then I accept that, you know, because so much adversity just to have him, you know. And all I wanted for my son was to have safe passage because I feel that everybody in this world deserves safe safe passage and there's so many people who live in adversity. Um, and so there's a big long story to all of that. And that's where those goals came from for my son. The three goals, because I thought, how can I raise my son to be a good person? You know, how do I, he's going to be a very good looking man. You know, he was a blonde haired, blue eyed Tahitian, all the Polynesian women would go, oh, mon Dieu, regarde, les yeux les bleus, les cheveux c'est blanc. You know, they're saying, oh, my God, look at him. He's got blue eyes and blonde hair, you know. And I'd think, oh, my God, like I've got to help him, you know. Um, so that's where I did the to be wise, to be confident and to be handsome from the inside because I felt that if I could teach my son to be wise – make good choices, to have true confidence, which was something that I always lacked, and 
to be handsome from the inside, you know, not rely on his shell to get him where he needs to go. Like I raised him and I would say to him, manners, they cost you nothing, but you can buy the world with them, you know. And now people see me and they say to me, oh, my God, your son, he's so amazing. He's so beautiful. He's so, you know, and I say, they're like, you've done an amazing job. And I'm like, we're a team, we're a team, you know. Um, but out of all that, I came back to Australia and in the end, there's a big, long story. It was a miracle, absolute miracle, We absolute miracle now that I look back. Anyway, so I got home and I started to feel angry. And I don't know if you know the five stages of grief, but you'll go through that if you have, if you move house, if you have a divorce, if you have a death, if you have any type of grief, you have these five stages, which is denial, anger, bargaining, disorganization, depression, That's, and then acceptance. And most people never get to acceptance. They, they, they'll fluctuate. That's why, the, why so many people live in suffering because they're fluctuating in grief and they're not recognizing, you know. Anyways, I could see that I was angry and I thought, I need to go see someone, you know. So I'm booked to have a session through mental health, through your doctor. Everyone's entitled to um, two lots of 10 sessions each year through the mental health program. So I booked myself in to see this lady and I sat down in the waiting room and then this man came in and on reflection, he wasn't probably a very safe person, but because of my people-pleasing, because of my lack of boundaries, because of my genuine lack of self-esteem. And again, if you had have met me, you would never have thought that I lacked self-esteem. But because of the way that I grew up, you know, having a, a emotionally unavailable mother who was often abusive verbally or physically, even just punishing for no reason because of her own inability to cope with her own anxiety or or whatever um you know I was never taught what it was to love and appreciate yourself anyways I ended up this guy started having conversation with me and I talked back and everything and then we this lady Leah she called me in Josephine you know it's your appointment time you know and we went in and we sat down and uh she said to me, can I ask you why you spoke to that man in the waiting room? And I thought, God, I thought, oh, because, you know, when, you, when you've when you been through a lot of trauma, you're you're actually quite hypervigilant for everything that's happening around you. And I yeah. thought, oh, she's, yeah. quite, she's quite hypervigilant, you know. She noticed that I was to, and I said, oh, I just felt that I needed to be kind to him. And then she said, what about the need to be kind to yourself? And I sort of like, you know, I thought, like never really thought about being kind to myself, you know. And then she said, I think, she said, you know, why did you come here today? And I said, "Uh, I'm feeling angry, but I don't know why. And she said, oh, could you just tell me a little bit about what's been happening? So I said to her, you know, I got married, I moved to French Polynesia, I had a baby, my husband had a drug addiction, he was never around, he was quite abusive, he threatened to kill us, I had to escape, I ended up cut, 
going through the court system in Australia, returned on the Hague Convention, I cashed in my superannuation to pay for the for my the custody. I had to go through all this abuse, being abused by people, spat on pe- spat on by people, kicked by people who believed all these stories. Um, and then in the end we were I got full custody of my son and we were escorted by eight frontier police and boarded back to Australia. And here I am, and now I'm looking after my father who's blind, and I don't know why I'm angry. And she just looked at me, and she said, I want to ask you, how, she said, how much do you know about boundaries? And I just looked at her, and I thought, what is she talking about? Boundaries? What's boundaries? And she just looked at me and I I just sat there just bewildered at 33, 34 years of age and I thought, I don't know what boundaries are. And she said, I want you, when you leave here today, I want you to tell yourself my needs are important. And I thought, oh, okay, okay. I'll, I'll try, you know. So I thought on the way home, I thought I'd stop at Spotlight because I wanted to grab a couple of things because I'm always making stuff. I used to be an accessory designer. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I got out of the car and it had been raining and there was a pathway and there was a lady coming towards me. And, you know, like in one of those split moments where you look up and that person looks at you and they're like, you're going to be walking in the mud, you know. And I looked at her and I said to myself, my needs are important. And you know what happened? She walked off the path in the mud and I stayed on the path and I was like, oh, my God, what just happened there? I was like, that's amazing. I'd spent my whole life always putting everybody else first and never thinking to put myself first. And just that simple, my needs are important, just changed my whole life, you know? And it wasn't like I was instantly like great at boundaries. I wasn't, but I kept reminding myself, my needs are important, I'm important, you know? And slowly but surely I started to come around and start to have better boundaries and realise why people rejected me because sometimes when you don't have boundaries, you make other people feel extremely vulnerable because they're like, wow, you know, what's going on there? Like, or, you know, and, and oftentimes people lack true intimacy. You know, there's only a certain level that they'll go down in life and then that's enough. They're not going to go any further than that, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was just like, I was like an open book, you know. I was like, what is, what's the problem? Let's solve the problem, you know. So, yeah, so that's, that's my experience on boundaries. As you've journeyed through life, you've also learned to be more aware and available in each moment with people. How do you live that out? I was actually thinking about that yesterday. You know, I was talking about the five stages of grief and that the first is denial. I think um, a lot of people, 
including me. We all, we all live in denial in some aspect of self. But we have this denial of our mortality. If you have life and you don't experience any adversity, then you're less likely to accept your mortality. Whereas once you go through some suffering, all of a sudden you realise, you know what, I'm not here forever. I have a gift right now today. I'm breathing. I'm, I can move. I can do everything I want to do, you know. So why would I not give time for that person? Like yesterday I walked into the supermarket and there was a lady with her pusher, um, you know, one of those walkers, and then her son was with her and he was in front of her. Now, he didn't smell good, you know, and he walked past another lady and she turned her nose up at him and was like, you know, downcasting. And I was thinking to myself, by doing that to him doesn't solve anything for him. He probably gets judged like that all the time, you know. And his mum was so happy that he was out of the house with her doing the shopping that I decided to engage in her joy over engaging in the other lady's judgment. Does that make sense? It does. It's like, what do I want to be a part of? Do I want to be a part of that negative mass consciousness or do I want to make a difference today? There was a girl, Charlotte Rawson, she was at uni and they did a pitch. They wanted to do a story, um, a documentary, and she she said, oh, I want to do a documentary on Josie. But she didn't tell me at the time that she wanted to touch on a part of my life in Tahiti. Anyway, she won the pitch, then came, said, oh, would I do the documentary? And then we did a second screening where we raised money and it went to charity. It went to like children in need and are you okay? And I remember Charlotte got up and talked that this night and they said, oh, how did you meet Josie? She said, I actually just rang her and said, I would like to do a documentary on you. Um, would you like to meet with me? And I said, yeah, sure. Do you want to pick up litter at six in the morning? And everyone started laughing. I thought, oh, what's so funny about that? Like, you know, and she said, I didn't expect that I'd be on the beach at six in the morning before the sun rises with Josie. She said, when I got there, she was so happy and so full of life. She said, all I wanted to do was go back to bed. She said, but by the time I got to the end of the end of the litter pickup, she said she felt so alive. I think it's that. And plus two, probably living in that refuge that I talked about when I went to Polynesia because I went back and then um, my son's dad said, you know, I've changed, or, you know, and then in the end I ended up, um, before I went away, I had done a book back in 1999 called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron and I actually went and had a massage the other day and the girl who gave me a massage she was so gentle and beautiful, and I said to her, have you ever heard of The Artist Way? And she goes, oh, my God, I want to buy that book. And I was like, oh, that's so uncanny, you know. Anyways, in that book it talks about, it, it uses the 12 steps from AA, which are profound steps. They're amazing steps. How these two guys downloaded that out of consciousness and then put it into writing so that people could practice it. Anyways, this book, The Artist Way, does the 12 steps. And so 
before I went back to Tahiti, someone said to me, um, and I'd been doing a lot of reading recovery, and they said, oh, have you ever been, have you ever heard of Al-Anon? And I thought, Al-Anon, that's, a, you know when someone says a word and you're like, no, I know that yeah. word. But I had never, I'd never heard it. I'd read it. And that's why I was like, I know that word. How do I know that word? So Al-Anon is for friends and family of drug and alcohol abuse. So I went to one meeting before I got returned to Tahiti with my son. And in that, I met these people and this one lady gave me, she said, here's my book, my ODAT book, One Day at a Time. She's, she's got no cover, it's got no back, but you can have the pages, you know. And I took that book with me and then when I went back to Polynesia and went through everything and then couldn't have my son and then got put in a refuge with like I think maybe about 80 other women, um, man, did I hit the ground running there. Like I remember my my... You know, I was like walking around going, Sequasa, Sequasa. It's like, what's that? What's that? You know, what's that? What's that? Like, you know, what's that? And they're like, Ballier, you know, broom, you know. So everything had, what is that? Um, You're trying to learn the language. Well, I couldn't communicate. No one spoke English. I mean, a little bit, you know. Um, but the thing was, is that I had to be in by 6 p.m. and I couldn't go out until the jobs, our jobs were done. So we'd get up in the morning, we'd all have breakfast, whoever would be on breakfast duty, everyone sit down. It was like prison. I was grateful though, I was grateful. You'd go up to your room, organise your room, and then you'd have to do jobs around, and then you could go out. So for me, that was so hard because I was like, oh my God, I just want to get up early and go and watch the sunrise. And you know, when you talk about like, where do I get that attitude from? It's because sometimes in my life I've been restricted and not been able, even though those people helped me and gave me a home for three months, because you can only stay in a refuge for three months. And it was great. And I got to learn um, French, you know, even though my French is probably really bad. It's probably better after a beer. I think that's why I just embrace each day because I know what it's like to not have and I know what it's like to face adversity and I know what it's like to lose, you know. So I just choose to be a part of the good stuff. It's a conscious decision that we all have, hey. Uh, it sounds like you, yeah, in those moments, you really do know exactly what you want, which is really, I think it's a beautiful gift to have because not many of us know really what we want underneath. You know, I always used to say when I was younger, you know, wisdom doesn't come with age, but with experience, you know. Mm. Never did I think that I was setting myself up for a lot of experience. And that just to really be your own person, you know, and I think it's hard. It's hard because I go out into the world, people look at me, people judge me, but whatever other people think, say and do is none of my business, you know. Mm. Just because someone someone thinks I'm nice, it's because they're nice. If someone thinks I'm bad, it's because they're bad. You know, it's got nothing to do with me. And that's where that Al-Anon was really good because when I went back to Polynesia, um, I actually then went to Al-Anon meetings and they were all in French. It was great. I had really no idea what anyone was saying. But I got to meet like-minded people and then... <laughs> When I first had my son taken off me and put into that refuge, I felt so sick. 
you know, because I actually had breastfed my son for a, a year and then I breastfed him till three years of age, but only for sleeps because I know people get weirded out at that stuff. And, you know, me too. I'm like, I'm a bit weirded out by some things that people do. But for a year I breastfed him and it was because we were going through so much adversity that that was our way of bonding. He yeah. always knew, you know, he could come to me. Um, and then I would breastfeed him for sleep. So I was actually like extracting milk in the shower so that I could keep my milk up so that when I did eventually get him back that I could still nurture him, you know, um, and I was successful. I breastfed everyone else's children. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. Funny. Like when I think about it now, I think, oh, my God, like I was doing everything to try and still stay a mum, you yeah. know, um, and have that for, for my son. Um, and, yeah, just little things like even – even now today, like when I see people, you know, they have a family and, the, you know, their mum might be helping and as soon as I see people start to whinge about their family or bitch about them, I just think I have to, I have to walk away right now because, you know, you just don't know what you've got, you know. Mm. If you're not happy with the situation, then communicate. Don't go behind somebody's back and think that you're going to solve a problem by not communicating. Communication is everything. That's the first part of this special two-part conversation with Josie Jones. In part two, you'll hear about how Josie's experiences led her to wanting to make real changes in behaviour toward littering on our coastline. If you're listening to this episode as it's released, part two will be out next Monday. If this conversation has raised issues for you, remember support is available. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the National Domestic and Family Violence Support Line on 1800 RESPECT. Thanks for checking in with me today. I'm your host, Susie McAvale, and if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more about the Let's Check In podcast, head to the website letscheckinpodcast.com where there's loads of information in the show notes. You can also follow us at Let's Check In Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and TikTok. This podcast is not a licensed mental health service and it is not a substitute for professional mental health advice. If something has come up for you in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This podcast has been made with the help of Pod and Pen Productions. 